Hello, and welcome to episode number one of the Klondike Gold Rush History Podcast. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. We both grew up here in the Yukon, listening to old family stories about the gold rush and hearing tales of characters with names like Skookum Jim, Klondike Kate, and Lion George Carmack, all trying to get a bit more than their fair share of the largest placer gold discovery ever. Every story seemed larger than life, every nickname more outlandish. The Klondike Stampede is one of those amazing historical events that just keeps fascinating people. It fascinates us now, and it fascinated people at the time. During the gold rush itself, and for years after, there were thousands of books, songs, newspaper articles, and even early movies about the adventures of the gold seekers. Just think of the stories, the drama, as almost 200,000 people, mostly totally unprepared, left home to try to get rich in a distant, frozen wilderness that most of them couldn't even find on a map. Both Jack London and Robert Service became fabulously wealthy, real rock star money in those days. Not from finding gold, but selling books with those stories. We're both big fans of history podcasts. A big call out to Mike Duncan and his wonderful history of Rome. But you know, when we looked for an engaging narrative podcast about the single biggest historical event ever to occur in our part of the world, well, we just couldn't find one. So we decided to do one ourselves. The plan is to tell the amazing story of the Klondike Gold Rush, from those early prospectors sniffing around the Klondike to the days of the big discovery itself, August 16, 1896, through the mad stampede that saw those 200,000 scramble by steamship, horse, foot, canoe, and pretty much any way they could towards the gold fields, to the moment when the bubble popped and thousands of the people that actually did make it to Dawson City suddenly stampeded after just a couple of years for the next big gold rush in Nome, Alaska. It's a bit arbitrary to pick the Nome stampede as the end of the gold rush. In reality, thousands of miners stayed in the Klondike for years afterwards, and lots of interesting things happened. For example, a hockey team of gold miners even went outside to challenge the Ottawa Silver 7 for the Stanley Cup. But the glory days of the Klondike prospector were over by that point. And it's a good place to stop. We wanted to keep this story short but accessible. So we are covering the prelude to the discovery up until the Nome Rush. It's aimed at local Yukoners and Alaskans who want to reconnect to these stories, as well as at Chichacos. And as we'll explain in a later episode, if you don't know what a Chichaco is, you probably are one. We plan 20 to 25 episodes of about 20 minutes each, That's enough to keep you entertained if you traveled the trail of 1898 from Dye, Alaska to Dawson City, Yukon. In your podcast-equipped car, of course. And not the months and months the people you are about to hear about took to walk, crawl, snowshoe, dog sled, and paddle it. We're going to tell the story chronologically, mostly, but we'll work in a few special episodes. For example, on things like how they actually mined the gold, as well as some of the Gold Rush's big personalities, such as Skookum Jim or Keish, the legendary First Nations prospector who was there at Discovery. Plus miners like Big Alex McDonald, Northwest Mounted Police Superintendent Sam Steele, and of course, Dawson Dance Hall Diva, Klondike Kate. If you were anybody in those days, you had to have a catchy nickname. We should also let you know that we're not professional historians. Pascal's studying history at university right now and spent a few summers as the Yukon's chattiest tour guide at the McBride Museum of Yukon History in Whitehorse, a place I definitely recommend you visit if you pass through town. And I'm the author of the Aurora of the Yukon series of Yukon historical adventure novels for young readers. We're both pretty soaked in gold rush history, 
Our ancestors came to the Yukon during the stampede, and their adventures and their mishaps were staple stories around the wood stove at the family cabin. And we've reread the classic books, including first-hand accounts by people who were there at the time, like Tapp and Adney and William Ogilvie, who we'll tell you more about later. And we've also read some more recent books, including the First Nations side of the story, something pretty sadly neglected in most 20th century versions of the gold rush. But this is very much our version of the story. If we make any mistakes, we apologize in advance and hope you'll let us know in the episode comments. So, let's get started. Thanks, Pascal. This first episode is appropriately entitled The Beginning. We have three big things you need to know before you get to the point where the headlines around the world are blaring about George Carmack, Quiche, Cagooks, and Chatelot finding all that gold on Rabbit Creek. First, we'll do a primer on the geography, rivers, and mountains, which in the pre-car days was pretty fundamental to how the gold rush happened. Second, there's the story of the indigenous people and the 15,000 or more years that they'd already lived in the Yukon, Alaska, before Euro-Americans, quote, discovered it. This is a story that you don't hear about much in the old history books. Finally, and you probably won't expect this, but we have to talk about the financial crisis of 1893. This is also usually left out of most stories about the gold rush, but the fact that there was so much unemployment and bankruptcy globally, and especially in the United States, is a big reason why so many people decided to leave friends and family and strike out for a region that was a total question mark to most of them. So let's start with the geography. If you're driving from Dai to Dawson right now, please don't look at a map. But if you look at one later, look at one with the mountains and rivers shown and not the roads and railways. We've posted a link on our website, klondikegoldrush.com. The key fact is that the Yukon River and its watershed fill most of the Yukon and Alaska. The Yukon River starts just south of the modern Yukon border, only a few miles from the Pacific Ocean, but then flows north and then west 2,000 miles through Alaska to the Bering Strait over by Russia. It drains an area bigger than Texas. The whole region is cut off from the rest of North America by steep mountains along the Alaskan coast, through northern British Columbia, and along the border between the Yukon and the Northwest Territories to the east. All of this means that it is difficult to get into the Yukon watershed, and Euro-American settlement came relatively late compared to the rest of North America. That's why Alaska's license plates say the last frontier. And the gold rush happens right at the moment when places like Seattle and New York City have electric lights, tram cars, and skyscrapers. But the Yukon is really still wilderness. This is something that makes the Klondike gold rush so fascinating. People are not just moving across mountains, but essentially back in time. Jack London picks this up in Call of the Wild, where the dog Buck is dognapped from a cushy life in San Francisco and ends up in the primeval wilderness face-to-face with Yukon wolves. That's a great book. There's a link to it on the website. A quick note on place names. We could do a whole episode on names, starting with the Klingit, Chachoni, and Kaska place names, for example, and going through the Russian period and their names for landmarks on the Alaskan panhandle, and when Captain Vancouver of the Royal Navy mapped the coast. Captain Vancouver mapped the coast and could see the coastal mountains, but not what was on the other side. That's the Yukon interior. On the blank bits of his maps, he tried to name what is now the Yukon, with names from back home in England like New Norfolk and New Cumberland. But fortunately, those didn't take. That's right. The U.S. Army sent Lieutenant Schwatka to explore the Yukon River in 1883, and he named places like Miles Canyon. His well-publicized trip through the Yukon without Canadian government authorization prompted Ottawa to pay more attention to the region. 
which it had bought from the fur-trading Hudson's Bay Company in the previous decade, but hadn't quite got around to exploring. But we'll try to keep it simple, and we'll just use modern names like Alaska and the Yukon, which should be familiar to listeners. Alaska was already a U.S. territory when the action started. The Yukon as a Canadian territory wasn't created until mid-1898. Prior to that, the term was associated with the big river of that name and the region. We'll also refer to the Klondike, which is both the name of the river that most of the gold creeks flowed into, as well as a small region around Dawson City. Along the coast in the Alaska Panhandle, the city of Juneau existed, and places like Sitka had been named and established during the Russian ownership of Alaska. But Skagway and Dai were not towns prior to the gold rush. But we'll use them as shorthand for those places since they're so well known today. Fact number two is that the Klondike, indeed all of the Yukon and Alaska, had been inhabited for thousands of years by indigenous peoples before the gold rush. It's a fact that seems obvious now, but it was often neglected back in the day, when newspapers screamed headlines about this or that Euro-American claiming to have discovered some part of the region, and often renaming it after a boss or a friend back home. There are active academic debates about the details of human arrival in the region, and every year brings new discoveries by archaeologists at formal digs, or hunters finding amazing 5,000-year-old artifacts melting out of snow patches on old hunting routes. The broad outline of the story is that during the last Ice Age, There was so much ice on land around the world that the planet's oceans were much lower. This made it possible to walk from Russia across to Alaska, across the so-called Beringian Land Bridge. It was basically a big plain, and you can picture small groups of hunters and gatherers chasing the mammoths and other big game across a vast, unpopulated sweep of land. To them, they were just exploring over the next hill or valley, but to us, they were crossing into what we call the New World. The archaeological evidence is clear this was happening 15,000 years ago, There's some evidence also, for example in the bluefish caves in the northern Yukon, that it started many thousands of years before that. It's also highly likely that people traveled in small boats along the coast, the so-called Kelp Highway. The coast was, and still is, incredibly rich in fish and other sources of food, so it would be a natural route for human migration, especially since the interior would have been blocked at various times by giant glaciers a mile or two thick as they grew and shrank. I find it fascinating that some people theorize that there was a time, maybe even a few thousand years, when the people crossing the land bridge were isolated by glaciers on both east and west. In the middle, it was cold, but there wasn't enough snowfall to build up into glaciers. So they did their thing until the planet warmed, and many of them continued south towards what is now the lower 48 states in South America. Exactly. It seems that uh, once paths through the glaciers melted and unblocked the routes from the Yukon watershed south, people migrated surprisingly quickly to the east coast and all the way down to the southern tip of South America. Another thing that gets left out of the old history books is how interesting and complex indigenous trade and travel were before contact with Euro-Americans. This really hit home at the recent display of the Ku Klux maps at the Kwanlin Dunn First Nations Cultural Center in Whitehorse. It was 1869, just two years after the U.S. bought Alaska from Russia, and George Davidson, a U.S. scientist who ultimately became a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, came to the Alaska coast to document an upcoming solar eclipse whose maximum was going to be near the Klingit settlement of Klukwan, near modern-day Haines, Alaska. Davidson and Chilkat Klingit chief Ku Klux seemed to have hit it off. 
Davidson showed Koklux his scientific information on eclipses, and Koklux and two of his wives shared their encyclopedic knowledge of the region's geography. In what was probably the first time he had held a pencil, Koklux sketched a map on the back of one of Davidson's charts of the route he and a Chilkat party had taken from Kluckwan to what we now call Fort Selkirk in the central Yukon. From memory, they laid out the to and from routes they had taken, marking mountain passes, lakes, river confluences, and so on. Koklux knew all this since he'd traveled these routes many times. We'll tell you more about his trip to Fort Selkirk and how unhappy the Hudson's Bay Company fur traders living there were to see him in the next episode. These trade routes were very well established. Athabascan indigenous peoples in the interior had furs, hides, and copper to trade with Tlingit traders coming with coastal items, such as hooligan oil, or items originally from Russian, British, or American traders on the Pacific. The Tlingits were in effect the middlemen, controlling the passes and the trade routes into the interior, and they did particularly well out of the trade. The scope of these trade linkages is illustrated by the Chinese coins that were discovered a few years ago, apparently lost at a good resting spot on an old trade route into the Yukon interior. These coins were minted in China in the 1600s. We don't know how they got to the Yukon or how long it took, but it's evidence of a continuous chain of trade links going all the way back to Asia. So the thing to remember is that when Euro-American trappers and prospectors started filtering into the Yukon in the decades before the Klondike Gold Rush, they were usually traveling and often guided by and had their stuff carried by very knowledgeable local indigenous people. You and I may have trouble finding our way to the mall without Google Maps, but these folks had in their heads a sophisticated mapping knowledge built up and passed down over generations. The last thing we wanted to set up with you is the financial crisis of 1893. It's a strange but important part of the tale. The strange part of it is that it started in faraway Argentina, where an economic boom and subsequent bust crippled a big British bank called Barings. As British and European investors pulled their money back home to be safe, the crisis crossed over to the United States. If you thought the global financial crisis of 2008 was bad, well, it was even worse in 1893, before most places had central banks, unemployment insurance, and so on. When I tell people on my tours how hard it was for stampeders on the Chilkoot Trail, they sometimes ask, what were they thinking? And it's a pretty good question. And the answer is that they weren't just attracted by the gold. They were trying to escape some pretty tough times at home. Precisely. The economic statistics from that long ago are a bit dodgy, but many economists think unemployment in places like Pennsylvania and New York was well over 20%. Hundreds of banks in the lower 48 went bankrupt. The crisis lasted for several years, up to 1897 and beyond. So, picture yourself back then. You just got laid off, the bank with your savings just went bankrupt, no one is hiring, and then you read in the paper that a boatload of filthy rich Alaskan miners just arrived in San Francisco. According to Tappan Adney, a journalist whose first-hand account of the gold rush is just full of amazing episodes like this, one shop in San Francisco put on display in its store window $130,000 worth of gold nuggets that just one prospector had brought home from the Yukon. That would be $3.5 million in today's money. So you can see why this grabbed people's attention when everyone was so down on their economic luck. No one knew it at the time, but the crisis of 1893 created perfect conditions for a stampede. So when the SS Excelsior steamed into San Francisco Harbor loaded with gold and rich miners on July 15, 1897, it was like putting a match to a rocket fuse. The Klondike Gold Rush was on. 
Come back for episode two, where we'll tell you the story of those guys who got off that ship in San Francisco with so much gold they had to stagger to the bank carrying it. Thanks a lot for listening. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about the episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub stake back.